the Son of God, became a man who was conceived in the womb of a virgin woman named Mary. Jesus is that Son of God. Jesus, unlike any other person who has ever lived, he's one person, yet he has two natures. He is truly and fully God, and he is truly and fully man. And we looked at why that is important. It's important because our salvation could not have been accomplished any other way. God alone is mighty to save us, and only a perfect man could die as a substitute for us, so God the Son became a man so that as God and man, he could rescue sinners. So what's the big deal about that? Hopefully that seems like a ridiculous question. What's the big deal? The big deal is that this is the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. But if that is not enough for you, the big deal is that this is a historical event. This is a reality that unlike any other event, unlike any other reality, this incarnation can save and irreversibly transform your life. That if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny changes forever from hell to heaven. And for those who truly come to know this Jesus, the truth of the incarnation begins to miraculously change who you are in the here and now. What kind of change are we talking about? Well, if I truly know, if I truly believe in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, that will change me. I will be in a process of becoming more of four things that we'll look at this morning. And the first thing that if I know Christ, that I will be in the process of becoming more of is selfless. Selfless. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. In verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Next, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 31 through chapter 11, verse 1, says something similar to what we read in Romans. Verse 31, Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul was imitating Christ in seeking the profit of the many rather than of himself. Christ became incarnate to seek the profit of the many. The Son of God became a man so that he could die in the place of others. 
The Son of God became incarnate so that he could make atonement for his people. He who was worshipped by the angels took on flesh in order to be spit upon, to be scourged, to be crucified by men. He who is one with the Father from all eternity became a man so that he could be forsaken by his Father on the cross in the place of sinners. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is the most selfless thing that anyone has ever done or will ever do. And that is the truth that Paul was drawing on when he commanded us in both of those passages to seek to please not ourselves, but others for their salvation and their sanctification. When we are Christians, when we profess to be Christians, but we are unwilling to deny ourselves, we are lying about who our Savior is because he denied himself to serve others. When we are selfish, we deny by our actions what we profess with our lips. Jesus was selfless, and when we follow him, he makes us more selfless. So that's the first thing we are in the process of becoming more of when we truly know this Jesus. The second thing that we are in the process of becoming more of, if we know Christ, is we are becoming more generous, more generous. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians. As you turn there, Paul is speaking about believers giving to a specific need. And the need he is speaking of is believers in Jerusalem who are uh, in need of material resources. And he's going to churches collecting material uh, resources to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. So that's, that's the topic that he's talking about. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That verse 9 there is a reference to the incarnation. This generosity that was being displayed by the Macedonians, this, genera this generosity that Paul was calling the Corinthians to show, this generosity was anchored in the generosity of Christ. 
because he was so generous, we as believers can be and should be generous. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus Christ was rich? Well, as creator, the Son of God owns how much? Everything. He is unimaginably and inconceivably rich. But when he became a man, the Son of God impoverished himself. He was born to poor parents. Before his ministry, he worked with his own hands to earn a living. During his ministry, he often had no place to lay his head. He was poorer than foxes and birds. He only owned the clothes on his back. And even those clothes were stolen from him by the very soldiers who crucified him, and they split up his garments among themselves. Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, died naked and alone on a cross. And even the tomb that he was laid in was not his own. It was donated to him by a rich man. Jesus became poor so that through his poverty, we who were spiritually bankrupt might become rich, that we might become sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ. Now, if you and I have experienced this kind of mind-boggling generosity from our Savior, then we will be willing, we will become more and more eager to extend just a, a glimmer of that same generosity to others. We will be willing to give of ourselves in order to lift someone up in, who is in need. First John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The implied answer to that question is that the love of God does not abide in that person. You and I cannot truly know the incarnate Jesus and be habitually tight-fisted at the same time, willingly allowing a, a needy brother to suffer when we have it within our means to alleviate the suffering of that brother. The two things do not go together, knowing Christ and being totally lacking in any kind of generosity that comes from the heart toward one another. So if we truly know our Savior, we will be growing in generosity. The third quality that we will be growing in, if we truly know our Lord, is that we will be growing in humility. We will be becoming more and more humble. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. What attitude? Being, uh, having humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Looking out for the interests of others before your own. That's the attitude Paul is talking about. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So keep that passage in mind, but let's go over to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20. Let me read verses 25 through 28. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then just one more. John's Gospel, chapter 13. John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Well, let's briefly consider those three passages. In Philippians 2, Paul commands each one of us to possess an attitude toward one another that is characterized by humility of mind, by regarding one another as more important than yourselves, by not looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And in Matthew 20, we saw Jesus call his disciples to have that same attitude, that of willingly becoming a slave to one another for their good. And in Philippians 2 and John 13, we saw how Jesus 
being God and knowing that he had received all authority in heaven and earth from God, that same person became a slave in order to serve others. And as our King of Kings, Jesus commands us to do the same thing. Our King is a great leader. He has led the way. Jesus is not commanding us to do anything that he has not already done himself. And what he's calling us to do is far less than what he himself did. How far did Jesus step down? An infinite distance. He deserved the worshipful obedience of all of creation, and yet he stooped down so low so as to serve and to sacrifice himself for rebels like you and me. Those of us who know him and have been saved by him, he is calling on us to follow him. How can we ever hold an attitude of pride to one another when our Lord humbled himself like that? That is the height of arrogance. It is evil that we would ever be prideful toward one another. We are nothing. We are sinners who deserve hell. And yet, our lofty creator humbled himself by becoming a man, becoming a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We don't deserve anything. He deserves everything. So let's not pridefully seek to get things from one another. Let's seek to give of ourselves to one another, because that's what our Savior did for us. So if you know Christ, you will be in the process of becoming more humble because your Lord is humble and he's commanded you to follow him in that self-humbling. The fourth and last thing that we will be growing in if we truly know Jesus is we will be in the process of becoming more worshipful of Jesus. The last passage we'll look at is back in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul writes in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every Name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done, God the Father has rewarded him by highly exalting him, by giving him the name that is above every name. For what purpose? Why is he giving him the name above all names? Because 
God intends to reward Jesus with having every knee bow to him of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and to have every tongue of every person who has ever lived confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you know how, did you notice how all-encompassing those last verses were that I read? There is not a person who has ever lived, who is living right now, or who will ever live, who will not fall on their knees before Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord. There are no exceptions. Everyone will bow and everyone will confess. But though there are no exceptions, there are two groups of people among those who will bow and confess him as Lord. This is where I really want you to focus. If I've lost you so far, wake back up and, and try to hear me. There are those who will willingly and gladly acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and there are those who will only acknowledge him as Lord begrudgingly, resentfully, and unwillingly. And the question for each of us this morning is, which one are you? Which group are you in? Which group am I in? Have you truly come to know the incarnate Jesus Have you experienced his salvation? If you have, he has begun the good and the gradual work of helping you to deny yourself more and more, of helping you to open up your hands toward others more and more, and of humbling you more and more. Yes, you still struggle with selfishness and greed and pride, but God is working on you. He's slowly conforming you to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Knowing, trusting, and loving Christ will inevitably change you in that way. Slowly, steadily, until he comes back to to bring us to himself. That's happening in you if you know Jesus Christ. But if you have not truly come to know the incarnate Jesus if you have not truly experienced his salvation, this is how you can know that about yourself. You are still enslaved to your selfishness. You simply are unwilling to set your own self-interest aside for the sake of Christ and for the blessing of others. Not only that, but you are still enslaved to your own appetites, your own lusts, your own fears, and so you are utterly unwilling to benefit others in any way that truly costs you, whether it's financially, emotionally, or physically. And you are still enslaved to your pride. You are unwilling to recognize that God does not owe you anything. And you are unwilling to joyfully let others have their way at your expense. If that is you this morning, there is salvation available to you. Maybe you've put on a good show of being selfless and generous and humble and worshipful of Christ, but it never comes from the heart. Inside, you are still enslaved to greed and to selfishness and to pride and to worshiping yourself. If that's you, there is salvation available to you. Jesus stands 
ready and eager to save you from the wrath of God and from your sin. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus tells us how we can receive this salvation. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, that is, in your heart, turn from sin and turn toward God. That is, stop desiring to have your way in your life and start desiring to have Christ's way in your life. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is, believe that Jesus is the God and King who became a man. And he did that so that he could live a perfect life in the place of sinners and so that he could die on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners and so that he could rise from the dead to give new life to sinners. Believe that. Trust that. Treasure that truth. Believe in the gospel. If you repent and believe in the gospel, Jesus will save you. And after saving you, he will begin to transform you. There is no good work that you can perform to save yourself or to merit God's forgiveness. Jesus has accomplished all that is needed for you. So come to him and rest in him. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift to us in the incarnate Christ. Let's pray.